speaks on the stuff progressives get wrong and how we can do better. Her name is Christina Villarini, and she is here to reveal her cosmopolitan bias to a shocking degree. Recorded in New York, you're listening to the Cosmopolitan Bias Podcast. This is a special long-form episode of the Cosmopolitan Bias Podcast. Welcome to today's show. I'm Christina, and this episode is titled The World's Oldest Colony. Puerto Rico, my heart's devotion, let it sink back in the ocean. (laughs) Today, you guessed it, we are talking about Puerto Rico. Wherever you are, I hope you're staying safe and healthy as you listen in. Colony, noun, a country or area under the full or partial political control of another country, typically a distant one, and occupied by settlers from that country. That song is called America, sung by Rita Moreno from the Oscar award-winning musical West Side Story. It's one of my favorites. But for those who are unacquainted, the film tells the story of two rival gangs in the 1950s. The Jets are white, and the Sharks are Puerto Rican. They fight for dominance in the diverse blue-collar neighborhood of New York's Upper West Side, while battling the struggles of youth and love and identity. Some of the Sharks want to go back to Puerto Rico, All their girlfriends are really enjoying Manhattan and they want to stay. The song is a witty manifestation of the reasoning and the argument, and it became a crowd favorite during the musical's run on Broadway. West Side Story is considered a classic, no doubt because the work was timely and relevant. Even though it was loosely inspired by Romeo and Juliet, written by four white dudes, it captured the moment New York was in at the time. Racial tensions and violence was a reality. The 1950s were significant for one more reason. It was when a young girl named Teresa would arrive in New York from the island of Puerto Rico. Teresa spoke Spanish first and pretty good English. She would grow up all over New York, the Upper West Side where her father worked at a bar, the South Street Seaport where her mother worked in a caviar canning factory. She would become pregnant at the age of 17 by her high school sweetheart, and subsequently live in a train station after being kicked out by her family. But she was a Puerto Rican. She would always find ways to survive. Eventually, she would go to business administration school while raising her children in El Barrio in East Harlem. Teresa is my mom, but let's go back to the beginning. Originally populated by the indigenous Taino people, Puerto Rico was colonized by Spain following the arrival of Italian explorer and notable fuckboy Christopher Columbus in the year 1493. The island became shaped by all of the horrible things that happen when assholes crash into a place and then claim they own it. So its influences are those of the natives being displaced, African slaves, and settlers from other places. By the late 19th century, which is basically before the 1900s, a distinctly Puerto Rican identity began to emerge. Based on the melting pot it'd become, 
It was Creole and Hispanic culture and language mixed with indigenous African and European roots and occupation. It was 1898 when, after the Spanish-American War, the U.S. liberated Puerto Rico from Spain when the Treaty of Paris was signed. With this, Spain no longer had any claim of sovereignty over Puerto Rico, but it also lost Cuba, Guam, and the Philippines. The Treaty of Paris marked the end of the Spanish Empire and the beginning of the United States as a world power. Later that year, a hurricane would destroy thousands of the island's farms and nearly the entire year's coffee crop. Of 50 million pounds of coffee, only 5 million were saved. But American hurricane relief was as ridiculous then as it would be 100-plus years later. The U.S. government sent exactly zero dollars. And then in 1900 would begin a full frontal assault on all the things people need to survive in a capitalist society. Their rights their job security, and their money. The U.S. outlawed all Puerto Rican currency and declared the peso to be of lesser value, equal to only 60 American cents. And just like that, Puerto Ricans lost 40% of their money without a single vote. The next year, the U.S. passed the Hollander Act, named after the U.S.-appointed treasurer to Puerto Rico, Jacob Hollander. The Hollander Act raised taxes by 1%, impacting many successful farmers who had never been taxed before. The new realities of the island were harsh. Farms on the brink of collapse, high taxes, and a Puerto Rican dollar that was now only worth 60 cents. The island turned to U.S. banks, but it would take just 10 years for those borrowers to default mostly farmers who then lost their land because of the lack of regulation on the terms of the loans. Puerto Ricans couldn't fight for better interest rates, their own treasurers, or the value of their dollar. But around 1917, the U.S. figured that it would be a good idea to allow Puerto Ricans to become citizens. President Woodrow Wilson would sign the Jones Act, which made Puerto Rico an official territory of the United States and granted Puerto Ricans U.S. statutory citizenship, which meant that Puerto Ricans were granted citizenship by an act of Congress, not by the U.S. Constitution. It would also make English the official language of Puerto Rico. 1917 was also right in time for those shiny new tanned U.S. citizens to fight for the stars and stripes in the First World War. Over 18,000 Puerto Ricans would serve. By 1930, all of Puerto Rico's sugar farms belonged to 41 syndicates. 80% were U.S.-owned. I guess there wasn't a military discount. But the Puerto Ricans were resilient and adaptive. They sought work in their cities to try and improve their situation. When the Puerto Rican legislature enacted a minimum wage law on the island mimicking the one in America, the United States Supreme Court declared it was unconstitutional. At this point, Puerto Ricans were receiving less money and giving more of it back to their supposed liberators than they had when they were under the occupation of Spain. Puerto Rico's lesser-than-do-not-even-try-equal status didn't improve as time went on. 
For decades, companies were given tax breaks to incentivize them to go make products and build their factories on the island. But the laws that propped up industry there were not only unsustainable, they were doomed. The 1976 tax break, for example, allowed U.S. manufacturing companies to avoid corporate income taxes on any profits made in U.S. territories, including Puerto Rico. But that tax break fucked domestic Puerto Rican companies because they had to pay taxes on their profits. By the early 1990s, there were even bigger problems. People started calling that tax break a form of corporate welfare. Section 936 had to go. In 1996, President Clinton signed the law that would phase out Section 936 over 10 years. Fast forward to 2006, and the island would be in the throes of a recession. Rather than cut spending to make up for declining tax revenue, the Puerto Rican government would go the other way, borrowing money it obviously didn't have from the folks who love to give you money when you're broke, Wall Street. All you need is a little bit of fantasy to create a full-fledged nightmare. In 2014, three major credit agencies would downgrade several bond issues by Puerto Rico to junk status after the government was unable to prove it could pay its debt. The downgrading, of course, would prevent the government from selling any more bonds. To try and stop the bleeding, the U.S. Congress stepped in. And considering how much success they'd had in the previous 100 years creating laws that screwed Puerto Ricans over, I could see why they were so enthusiastic about getting involved. They would enact a law known as PROMESA, which appointed an oversight board with ultimate control over Puerto Ricans' budget. So what did PROMESA do to help with the debt, Christina? They... Hold on. Check my notes. Yep, they raised taxes, stopped public services, and they cut pensions. It would be early 2017 when Puerto Rico would file for bankruptcy as its public debt reached $74 billion, with a B. In response to industry after industry shutting down and leaving the island, Puerto Rico's government became its largest employer. But that was the same government that was constantly in turmoil as a result of years of financial ruin and limited opportunities. Today, Puerto Rico is on its third governor in four years, and 44 or 45% of the island is in poverty. Oh, and the aging infrastructure across the island makes the electrical grid more susceptible to damage from anything, but especially from storms. The average age of the power plants there is 44 years old. Hurricane Maria has entered the chat. It would be September 2017. A Category 5 hurricane, Maria was the deadliest U.S.-based natural disaster in 100 years. It was also the worst hurricane to hit the Atlantic since Hurricane Mitch in 1998. In the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, island residents did not have full power for almost a year. 
the death toll counts were flawed and inaccurate, and some accused the Puerto Rican government of a cover-up. At first, the Puerto Rican government reported somewhere between 16 and 64 deaths. After months of outrage at 64 remaining the official death toll amount, and with dozens of families burying their own, reports of bodies and piles in Puerto Rico's hospitals without electricity or clean water, a study by Harvard University concluded there could be a death toll ranging anywhere from 793 to 8,498. The number of nearly 3,000 was released in June 2018 after an independent study by George Washington University in July, which was commissioned by the governor of Puerto Rico. President Donald Trump would deny the findings, tweeting one year later on September 13, 2018, 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by much. Then, a long time later, they started to report really large numbers like 3,000. This was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible when I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. If a person died for any reason, like old age, just add them onto the list. Bad politics. I love Puerto Rico! Exclamation mark. End quote. I sure as hell wouldn't categorize his behavior as love by any means. All that I could see from his press conferences in the aftermath of the hurricanes were deep contempt for even having to be there. And when I think of the many horrific images seared into my mind of Donald Trump's presidency, I cannot shake the one of him in Puerto Rico tossing up paper towels like Nino Brown from New Jack City. Even if Trump was raising billions of dollars for Puerto Rico, it wasn't getting there. And history for Puerto Rico sadly kept repeating itself. Trump's housing secretary, Ben Carson, made a big deal about giving lots of aid to Puerto Rico to rebuild after Maria, but then placed restrictions on the island, citing their alleged corruption and fiscal irregularities, as well as Puerto Rico's capacity to manage these funds, as a first-time grantee. Interestingly enough, no one cared about Donald Trump's alleged corruption, fiscal irregularities, or his capacity to manage a country as a first-time president. But man, I gotta let that go. Trump's politics on the mainland weren't doing the island any favors. The longest government shutdown in American history only increased the delays for when the allocated funds were supposed to be distributed to Puerto Rico. Just for comparison's sake, Texas and Florida faced similar issues after hurricanes Harvey and Irma, but their relief was never held up after, and they faced no additional restrictions on how to use the money. After President Donald Trump's repeated claims that his administration had given Puerto Rico $91 billion in relief funds, after hurricanes Irma and Maria devastated the island. A report published by Puerto Rico's top research think tank, the Center for a New Economy, said that the island had only received $12.6 billion. 
This must be the 21st century white man's burden. But how did this all impact the island? And how does it continue to impact the island? Well, Hunter College's Center for Puerto Rican Studies in New York estimates that between 114,000 and 210,000 Puerto Rican residents will leave the island annually in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Today, U.S. federal agencies control Puerto Rico's foreign relations, customs, immigration, postal system, radio, TV, transportation, social security, military, maritime laws, banks, commerce, currency, and defense. Puerto Rico has been known as many things, probably most as a low-cost, safe, and attractive Caribbean destination for travelers from all over the world but most often visited by folks from the mainland. Though it takes just three and a half hours to get to Puerto Rico on a direct flight from New York, it took several months to figure out how to get aid there, and those dollars are still nowhere to be found. For over 525 years, the people inhabiting Puerto Rico have lived in a state of limbo. Today, the attacks on our personhood are plentiful as white-presenting Fotinos reap the benefits of African and Latin heritage without the discrimination and rob authentic indigenous voices from the opportunities they deserve. Many of us born on the mainland feel that limbo every day. Throughout my own life, my internalized judgment and guilt about being born in New York always bubbled to the surface when it came to Puerto Rico. Am I Latina enough? with my father's Italian last name? Am I too Latina or too unidentifiable to pass as white if I need to? Why is my Spanish still so terrible? In 2018, I had the ability to help raise money for relief efforts through the New York City Mayor's Office, and my video explaining how folks could help was shared pretty widely. I was confronted by vitriol and the irrational replies of dozens of strangers who clearly knew nothing about U.S. history and even less than that about Puerto Rico. In fact, whenever I've ever posted any comment for support on hurricane relief or Puerto Rico deserving U.S. aid, I've encountered those go back to your own country or why should we take care of them types. Now I'm old enough to realize that this is likely just a small percentage of what my mother experienced living here through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and longer, having originated from the island. But like those that came before us, she persevered. She was audacious, and she sacrificed to make a home for us. Puerto Rico itself remains an unincorporated territorial possession, making it the world's oldest colony. In unincorporated territories, the U.S. Constitution applies only partially. If we remember what we learned earlier, thanks to the Jones Act, Puerto Ricans were given citizenship by an act of Congress, not the U.S. Constitution. In unincorporated territories, fundamental rights apply as a matter of law, but other constitutional rights are not available. 
And don't get it twisted at all. The colonial nature of the U.S.-Puerto Rico relationship after 1898 was influenced by the tight grips of oppression that had embraced the mainland. The U.S. was gassed up enough to think that they should put another island through the exact same shit they fought the British over during the American Revolutionary War. My mother, of course, is not a second-class citizen. Her Spanish is perfect. Her English is wonderful and fluent. She is American and she is Latina. She is indigenous. She is Boricua. She loves the Food Network and Candy Crush, and she watches both Spanish and American news. She's active in the political clubs in El Barrio, and she is a beloved part of it. She has watched and heard of the atrocities on the island, but she has lived through her share of cruelty here. Racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, anti-Blackness, and colorism even within Hispanic and Latino communities. Oh, and more assassinations than she would care to remember. In a time when we are more divided than ever, there is an opportunity now for the United States to explore how to write a new chapter with Puerto Rico. I'm not a politician, and I don't live on the island, so I can't speak to the debate that rages on regarding independence versus statehood. What I can say is that Puerto Ricans have demonstrated their ability to endure, survive, and overcome. They've gotten really fucking good at it. And maybe that's why we've got a little bit of a chip on our shoulder. And we believe we can actually do anything. Teresa Peña told me that. And even though I still speak gringa Spanish, I believe her. Thank you for listening to the Cosmopolitan Bias Podcast. To connect with Christina or to support the podcast, please visit Cosmobias.com. 